0: Let's read our scripture together, Acts fifteen thirty six through sixteen five. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. This is God's Word. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we're in chapter 16, really one through five today. That's real, really our focus. I had us read back into chapter 15 just by way of review because there are some reference points in today's passage that, that draw us back to the earlier passage. And, and so by way of review, we read all of that. Chapter 16 really marks the beginning of a series of narratives that, contain some of the most significant events in the life and mission of the Apostle Paul. In chapters 16 through 18, we're going to join him on his ministries to cities with familiar names, places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus, before they return to Jerusalem and then back down to their home church in Syrian Antioch. He's about to embark on his second missionary journey. Let's go to that map. You remember uh, up on the right-hand side uh, is the city of Antioch. Right in the middle of the right-hand side there is Antioch. That's Syrian Antioch. You see Jerusalem down at the bottom on the right. And uh, on the first missionary journey, you remember that Paul went with Barnabas from Antioch. Out to Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, and then northward to uh, Perga, and then from Perga up over the Taurus Mountains to Pisidian Antioch, and then to Iconium and Lystra and Derby and uh, what what we're seeing the beginnings of today is the second missionary journey. And you see now that that they're they're going to leave from Antioch and they're going to go on land, overland. To Tarsus, which is Paul's hometown, that's that's in the the area known as Cilicia, and then out to Derby and Lystra and Iconium again. Uh, and when you read when you read the book of Galatians, these are the churches that that Paul was writing to. Uh, in that letter, the the letter to the churches of Galatia was a circular letter. It was passed from church to church, so that each of them could read it. Scholars uh, seem to differ on how long it had been since he and Barnabas concluded the first missionary journey uh, and uh, and uh, now beginning the second. uh, Some say just two years had elapsed. Uh, Since then, some say that as many as five years had passed. So uh, take your pick. It's somewhere in there between two and five years. What is clear is that Paul is intent now on setting out on a new journey with really an entirely new team. In verse thirty six of chapter fifteen, as you saw last week, Paul as the mission leader defines the primary purpose of this new adventure. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now remember that Paul's partner's name was Barnabas, but his real name Was Joseph, Uh, Barnabas was a nickname, and and he got it because it it meant son of encouragement. He was just a very encouraging guy, and you you know people like that. They just kind of ooze encouragement. You love to be around them because whenever you're with them, they affirm you and they encourage you and they cheer you on in the things that you're you're about, the things that God is calling you uh, to be and to do. And it's not hard to imagine that the way that Paul defined the purpose of this next journey would have been incredibly appealing to a guy like Barnabas, right? Because he's going to go back and he's going to... See those people again that uh that became friends that became disciples on that first journey he's going to be able to encourage them individually pat them on the back he was probably a hugger uh I knew a guy that was a hugger and a kisser that was kind of weird but but uh in those days it wouldn't you know days of Paul and Barnabas might not have been so weird and so Barnabas is excited he's a people person and he's not only going to be able to encourage them individually but uh, he's going to be able to encourage those churches corporately in their life together. But, of course, as we saw uh, last week, a, a conflict arose between Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas wanted to take his young nephew, John Mark, along on the journey. Uh, recall that, uh, that John Mark had, had been with them on their first missionary journey, but he had left from Perga just after they had left Cyprus and, and traveled northward as they got on the coast of what is now Turkey uh, at, at, in the city of Perga. Uh, It says that John Mark left them and went back home to Jerusalem. Uh, In other words, he had left before any of the real work had even begun. Uh, He had gone home. It's pretty clear that Paul thought of John Mark's departure as a kind of desertion, as an abandonment. And some of the people in the places that they would be visiting had been hostile to Paul and Barnabas. The last thing that Paul thought he needed in in a situation like that was a deserter on the team and so he put his foot down he refused adamantly to take John Mark along and and the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas became so intense of course that they ended up parting company Barnabas and John Mark left uh, went back to Cyprus uh, Paul took Silas and departed verse 40 of chapter 15 told us having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the lord now i want to pause right there uh, so that we don't miss what's being said the brothers in antioch commended the team to the grace of the lord this group of leaders in antioch syrian antioch believed in this team they believed god had called this team together they endorsed them they backed them they supported them at least in prayer, if not also financially and materially, but, but probably those things as well. They probably gave them some money. They probably outfitted them for this new journey. So Paul and Silas, hear this, Paul and Silas were sent by the church in Syria and Antioch. And it was to Antioch that they eventually returned. There, there's a principle here to be observed, I think, though I would not be So bold as to call it a law. The principle is that it is wise, it is advisable for anyone who is actively pursuing a ministry beyond the local church, the church to which they belong, to first make the leaders aware, to pursue the counsel, the affirmation, the blessing of their local church leadership. It's it's not a law, but it is sound wisdom. The people in your home church know a lot more about you and what makes you tick and how you're called and how you're gifted, how you're wired than the people in the new location. In verse 41 of chapter 15, Luke tells us that Paul and Silas went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Uh, as I mentioned, they're not traveling by sea this time. They're, they're on foot or on horseback or, uh, in some way traveling over land. And it's interesting that he says that they visited the churches, strengthening the churches in Syria and Cilicia because we don't really know of any other churches in Syria other than the one in Pisidian Antioch. And we certainly have not been introduced to any churches yet in Cilicia. Uh, Cilicia is where Tarsus, uh, was and that was um Saul, Paul's hometown, it's where he grew up. Uh, so neither does not only does he not mention any specific churches, he doesn't provide any descriptions of their specific activities in those churches other than they strengthened them. And so we learn, oh, there are churches, there are other churches in Syria. There are some churches in Cilicia. The, the gospel is expanding to places we don't, we don't even know about. Instead, what seems like for Luke is that he's, he's in a hurry to get Paul and Silas to the cities of Derby and Lystra in order to introduce us to the next member of the team who was, as Luke says, a disciple well-spoken of. A disciple well spoken of Verse, verses one and two of chapter sixteen, Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now these two cities, Derby and Lystra, are, are actually pronounced Derbay and Lustra, if, if that matters to you. I kind of think when you say Derbe, you kind of need to put your pinky out, right? I live in Derbe. I'm from the city of Derbe. And Lystra is pronounced Lustra. Um But I'm just going to call them Derby and Lystra because that fits my tongue better. They had been the last two towns visited by Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And so now as, as Paul and Silas approach from the east this time, Derby. And Lystra, Derbe and Lystra, were the first to be revisited. You know, I continue to be amazed at Paul's courage and his resolve. Um, It was in Lystra, remember, that Paul had been stoned. That's that's the kind with rocks. And um, he had been left for dead. In other words, when they stoned him, they thought he was dead. They thought they had finished the task and he survived the stoning stoning is a brutal way to die and and paul was pretty would have been pretty beat up there's there's a place in scripture where he says i, I don't mess with me because i bear the marks of christ and i think part of what he was describing was that he was he had, had so many injuries that he was probably disfigured by that and 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 i'm not sure i i'd have been in a hurry to to go revisit a place where I had been treated that way, where I had almost died because the same people are still there, and nevertheless the boys are back in town i mean they're they're back in Derbe and lustra Derby and Lystra there there they meet a disciple whose name was Timothy, same Timothy that you know about from the New Testament letters of Paul first and second Timothy. And in fact, in the Greek text, it actually says, behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. And that command, behold, uh, means something. It means actually to listen up, uh, pay attention. There's something here to pause and consider. There's, there's, there's something that you need to know. Don't, don't just, you know, surf over the top of this. You, so, so let's do a little beholding, shall we? Who was this guy, this disciple named Timothy? We'll start with his name. His name, Timotheos, is made up of two Greek words. Uh, Timae. if you're taking notes, it's spelled in the Greek, uh, in the transliteration from the Greek, just the same way we spell the word time, T-I-M-A, but it's pronounced Timae, and it means to accord honor. It means to pay respect. And the second part of that name, Theos, of course, means God. So Timotheos, Timotheos, Timothy, literally means one who honors God or one whom God honors, either either way. And we will learn that Timothy was clearly one who honored God in his life. In 1 Samuel 2.30, God says, those who honor me, I will honor. And so the name fits both ways with Timothy. He honored God, God honored him him. Uh, Luke goes on here in verse 1 of chapter 16 and tells us that that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and Luke doesn't tell us her name. We, We learn it later from Paul, who wrote in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you As well, and he says, I'm sure, he says, I am absolutely confident. That's what he says. Same faith that was in your grandmother and your mother has now taken root in you. And it seems that Timothy had been led to faith in Jesus Christ through his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. It's not only probable, but it is more than likely that Lois and Eunice had each come to faith through the ministries of Paul and Barnabas when they came through town the first time. These two women represented the fruit of Paul and Barnabas, prayer and preaching, their perseverance. And and Timothy now represents a second-generation believer uh, as he had personally come to faith through their influence. But but Luke adds also that that Timothy's father was a Greek. In fact, that's all we know about Timothy's father. We we know nothing other than Timothy's father was a Greek. But this raises a real question. Hence the word behold. Stop and think about this. How was it that that Eunice, a Jewish woman, had married a Greek husband? That is a Gentile husband. How, How would the Jewish community have tolerated that kind of intermarriage? It's possible, seems likely, that that would only happen... In a place where the Jewish population, the Jewish presence was, was very sparse. Uh, ten Jewish men, for example, were required to establish a synagogue. And as we've already seen, Paul's practice in each city he visited was to go first to the synagogues. Luke gives no indication whatsoever in chapter 14 that, that Paul did that in either Lystra or Derby, which, which would be an indicator that no synagogue May have existed in either of those two, two communities. So it's possible that, that there were less than ten, uh, very few Jewish men in either of those communities. So, so it's possible that Eunice had been allowed as a matter of sheer practicality to marry a Gentile. There just wasn't anyone else to marry. I often tell, um, you know, young women who, uh, who come in for premarital counseling, I'll say, you know, you marry a sinner. There There's no one else available. Uh, you're going to marry a sinner. So, so realize that. And he's marrying a sinner too. And it's you. And there's just no one else to marry. Uh, and in this case, I think for Eunice, there, there may have been no one else to marry, but a Gentile. Neither does Luke give any indication that Timothy, Timothy's dad shared Eunice's faith in Christ. Uh, and sadly, the overall context suggests that Timothy's father, in fact, may have died, or at least was no longer in the family picture. And I want to just pause right there and, and say now here's here is a grandmother and a mother who are raising a boy. And and some of you are in that circumstance. Some of you as Grandparents are raising your grandchild, your grandchildren. And know that God can use you. And, and some of you are single moms, uh, who are raising children. And it's, and it's, it's challenging, isn't it? It's hard to do as, as a single parent. And, and I want to applaud you. I want to encourage you. Uh, I want to say that we as a community need to support you. And encourage you and build you up in that. But know that, that God can use you uh, to to raise godly children. Uh, some of you are are uh, you may be a Christian wife and mother whose husband doesn't know the Lord, uh, and and that creates a whole other set of circumstances, doesn't it? But know that God can use you to raise godly children and grandchildren. Luke adds in, in verse 2 that, that Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers, that is, uh, meaning the Christians at both Lystra and Iconium. Uh, think about that. Miles separated these cities. There, there was quite a distance between them, and, and especially in a time when the roads were kind of rough in that region, I understand. Uh, it was kind of a frontier area, very largely undeveloped. The Romans hadn't really, you know, developed their their road system there uh, extensively as of yet. No phones, no telephone, no uh, internet, no nothing. Quite a distance. Why am I saying this? Timothy was apparently so influential and had such a good reputation that Christians throughout that region knew of him and spoke well of him. It's estimated that Timothy was probably just in his late teens when he first met Paul. And later, would, Paul would write to Timothy, who, who by then had become the pastor of the church in Ephesus, providing him with a list of qualifications for those who aspired to the office of overseer, elder, pastor. Among them was that an elder must be well thought of by outsiders. That described Timothy. And as long as we're beholding Timothy's resume, let's add to it the observation that it's likely that his multicultural, multi-religious, probably multilingual upbringing would have given him entree into both Jewish and Greek communities. Timothy is a teenage guy, a remarkable young man. Unique. Given that resume, it's no surprise then that Paul wanted to add Timothy to his missionary team, not just as a companion, but as a co-worker. Paul had to have been discouraged, I think, by the departure of Barnabas. They were friends. They had been significant teammates. They had they had been through some stuff together. Uh, we might say that Paul was de-encouraged when Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took leave and went home to Cyprus with John Mark. And yet in Antioch, God had given him Silas to take the place of Barnabas. And now there's a sense in which, in which Timothy is about to take the place of John Mark as the young apprentice on Paul's missionary team. Now, if you have your Bibles, notice verse 3 with me. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, if you've been following along as we're working our way through the book of Acts, right now you might be saying, hey, wait, wait a minute. I thought that issue got resolved. I thought the Jerusalem council handed down the decision that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Is Paul doing an about-face? Is he waffling? Is he kind of giving in to his latent pharisaical legalism? The answer to the first question is yes. That was the decision of the Jerusalem council, as Bruce so ably helped us to see two weeks ago in chapter 15. The next answer is no. Paul is not caving in to legalism. Let me connect some dots. In chapter 15, verse 1, we read, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. So they came from where? From Judea. They came down to Syria and Antioch. And now remember that Paul considered the circumcision issue so important that he had made what was a long journey in those days from Antioch in Syria down to, to, or up to Jerusalem to battle those who, who were insisting essentially that in order for a Gentile to become a Christian, in order for him to be fully included among the people of God, he must first become a Jew. And Paul, in the presence of the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, strongly argued against that. Strongly is not even a strong enough word. Again, in Jerusalem, Acts 15.5 tells us some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Right in the middle of this debate that's going on, they said, it is essential. It is necessary. You must become a Jew to become a Christian. And without rehashing the entirety of chapter 15 and 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 kind of uh, running roughshod over what Bruce so eloquently taught you. Here was the good news. At the close of the proceedings in Jerusalem, James, who was the brother of Jesus, and who by that time had become the leader of the church in Jerusalem, gave this conclusion in verses 19 to 21. He said, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James' wise judgment accomplished two very important purposes. First, it cleared the way for Gentiles to come into the kingdom on the basis of simple faith in Jesus Christ. To, to be a Christian is to be saved on the basis of personal faith in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile. I remember hearing someone say years ago, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. In other words, if if you're trying to add things to to simple faith in Christ, you've missed the point. You you really don't understand genuine Christianity. It is we are saved by grace, alone, through personal faith, alone, in Jesus Christ, alone. That's it. You don't add baptism. You don't add membership uh, in a church. You don't add... Marriage in the church, you don't add taking mass on a weekly basis, you you don't add any of those things. Second, and don't miss this, so so many conversations on this topic gloss right over verses 20 and 21, and James removed the obstacle of circumcision to be sure, but he also provided four conditions whereby Gentile believers could enjoy fellowship with Jewish believers without unnecessarily offending their Jewish sensibilities. James isn't adding laws. He he wasn't wasn't saying, you don't have to be circumcised, but you do have to observe these laws. That's not what James is saying here. The conditions were that Gentile believers should demonstrate sensitivity to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ by abstaining from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating meat from animals who died by strangulation, and from eating blood. Those were just day-to-day points of sensitivity. And when he said in verse 21, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues, his point, I think, is that there are Jews and Jewish communities pretty much anywhere and everywhere you might go, especially in those days, especially in that region. So James is calling his new Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ Um to some fundamental sensibilities that, that would make for unity among diverse people groups within one body of Christ. You might be saying, okay, that makes sense, but I still don't understand. If it wasn't necessary for a Gentile to be circumcised in order to be saved, why Paul wanted Timothy to submit to that painful procedure? Well, here's the news flash Timothy was not a Gentile wasn't a Gentile? Because his mother was a Jewess, Timothy would have been regarded by the Jewish community as a Jew himself. And the dirty little secret was that because his father was a Greek, which all by itself was something of a scandal to begin with, he would never have consented to having a son circumcised. Never. Never. And, and everybody who knew Timothy knew that, or at least assumed it to be true. Wink, wink, right? I mean, I used to look at this and I, and I thought, well, why do you have? Why did he have to be circumcised? I mean, who's going to look, right? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like you went into the synagogue and kind of opened up your coat and said, uh, "See," you know? <laughs> I don't think it was like that. Show me yours; I'll show you mine. It wasn't. It wasn't that at all. So why would they have assumed that because his father was a Greek that Timothy would not have been circumcised? In Greek culture, it was the male body that was considered the ideal body, not the female. In fact, in in Greek um, philosophy, the female body was just an imperfect male body. That if you'd actually been born perfect, you'd have been born Male, how does that feel right now? The female body was regarded as imperfect. So if you if you study Greek statuary, for example, you'll, you'll find more, more statues of male bodies by far than female bodies. In fact, in those days, if you wanted to really compliment a young man, a young Greek man, on his physique, you, you know, the biggest compliment you might give him would be to say he described a statue or a sculpture. Uh, and a lot of those statues a lot of greek statuary a lot of greek sculptures you know were were depictions of the gods but the greeks because of that shunned the practice of circumcision because they considered it a mutilation of a perfect body someone once told me that i had the body of a god i, I was feeling pretty good about that until they clarified that the god was buddha <laughs> let's come back to our text in verse 3 Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were in those places, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek, but... Notice with me in verse 3 the reason why Paul circumcised Timothy. First, he wanted Timothy to come along as part of the missionary team, but a problem had to be addressed, and it's expressed in those phrases, because of the Jews, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Some other translations render this more clearly, I think. For example, the New English Bible translates it, out of consideration for the Jews, The New Living Translation has it, in deference to the Jews. So Paul's desire was that Timothy be circumcised, not in order to be saved, but to remove obstacles and keep doors open to the communication of the gospel. In Romans 10.17, Paul wrote that faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And if that is true, and it is, if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, then our first goal as missionaries is simply to gain a hearing. Will you please listen to what I have to say? But if... I'm really getting to the point here, trust me. If by our cultural carelessness or our personal insensitivity. We either erect um, unnecessary obstacles to that hearing or refuse to remove obstacles of which we are aware. Some may never have the opportunity to receive the gospel and put their faith In Christ. You following me? You need a nap? Anybody? In other words, if right out of the gate we offend the sensibilities of those whom we hope to reach with the gospel, they may, and in most cases will, simply reject us and reject the message before we even gain a hearing. you know when i was uh, and by the way i think evangelical christians can sometimes be the most obnoxious insensitive people in the world when it comes to these things you know we want people to be like us we're the moral majority well no we're we're actually kind of the the minority and shrinking fast in america I heard someone recently say that the paradigm by which we ought to view ourselves as Christians today in America is exiles. We ought to think of ourselves as exiles because we are no longer in control of the culture. We That that change happened long ago. When I was younger, I, I would read here this short terse statement that Paul took Timothy and circumcised him and it seemed to me almost an act of violence, right? I mean, it's just it's just stated there. And in my mind, he was taking a, a kid, a young, a young kid, a young teenager and just doing something to him. And, and it seemed violent to me as if Timothy had no say. And what I realize now is that Timothy did in fact have the right to refuse and say no thank you. No thank you. And no one would have denied him his right not to submit to that painful procedure. Uh, While circumcision would make Timothy more of a Jew, in a sense, kind of fulfill his Jewish covenantal identity, it didn't make him any more of a Christian. It had nothing to do with his salvation. So Timothy had the right to say no. But but Paul also had the right to judge Timothy's readiness for ministry based on whether he was willing to lay down his rights and take that step for the sake of the gospel, just as Paul had the right earlier to make a judgment about John Mark's readiness to be part of the team for this second journey. And I would say pastors and elders have the right also to evaluate the readiness of people in the local church who aspire to be leaders, to serve in positions of influence in the body of Christ, or to be sent out as missionaries or pastors or church planters on the basis of their willingness to lay down their rights for the sake of the gospel and the health and the unity of the local church. Timothy's choice to lay down his rights, to, to undergo circumcision as an adult male, demonstrated his own heart and his own passion for the advance of the gospel. He was willing to remove what would clearly have been an impediment to gaining a hearing for the gospel among the people in that region. Now hear me in what I'm about to say. What was unnecessary for acceptance with God was necessary and was advisable for acceptance by some human beings. Let me say that again. What was unnecessary for acceptance with God was necessary, was advisable, was wise for acceptance by some human beings. See, you and I need to learn to think and act like missionaries. Those whose hearts are passionate about helping people to find and follow Jesus will often make choices that cause personal discomfort for the sake of greater personal credibility, broader appeal for the gospel. You know, we Americans have learned well the lessons of my rights and my liberties. These things have been tightly woven into the warp and woof of the fabric of our beings as Americans, we have the Bill of Rights. We, we declare our rights. We demand our rights. We protest and fight to defend them. We, we resist sometimes even violently those who would impinge on our rights. One of the problems of American Christianity is that we've taken this mindset of demanding our rights into our walk with God forgetting or at least neglecting the realization that we now are citizens of a new kingdom with a new king with an upside-down set of values. and Some of us are more American than Christian when it comes to the operative values by which we live our lives. Some of us seem not to understand that there is a difference between the two. And then we sit back and we wonder why the church is weak today in its distinctiveness. Why the church today is weak in its witness. I heard recently about a pastor in one church, and this is kind of a silly story on one level, but but pastor in one church who asked his ushers not to wear t-shirts or other clothing emblazoned with brand names. Or, or featuring messages that were potentially offensive to others who might be visiting their church. And some of those ushers left the church, of course, accusing the pastor of legalism. Was it legalism? Maybe, maybe not. It's true that we as Christians have the right to wear whatever we want, I suppose, unless, unless it's somehow immoral. But every Christian has the responsibility to be willing to thoughtfully and humbly remove obstacles to others hearing and receiving the gospel. So what's more difficult, pulling a different T-shirt out of the closet or being circumcised as an adult male? I don't know. You decide. Be, what do you think? Sure. (laughs) See, by choosing circumcision, Timothy did this. He, He broadened his capacity for effectively communicating the gospel to a particular group of people in a particular place. They happened to be his people. They were his people. They were his neighbors. But it wasn't just Timothy making that choice. Paul also had made many other choices for the same purpose. In fact, in chapter of, chapter nine of his first letter to the believers in Corinth, he described that, that dynamic in this, in his life this way, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ." When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Now you won't remember all of that, but but earlier in verse 12, earlier in verse 12 of that same chapter, Paul said this, we put up with anything, Rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. You see, laying down one's rights is not legalism. It's love. It is wisdom. It is maturity. Some of you know that Marcy and I became grandparents a couple of years ago. We're going to celebrate little Oliver's second birthday next month. And I could go on and on about him, but but suffice it to say that that my grandson is cuter than yours. (laughs) And smarter. Just kidding. Not, I don't care. A, a, A while back, he pulled two toys out of the toy box at our house. They, they were his dad's toys when he was a kid. Uh, Gumby and Pokey. remember them? Gumby and Pokey. And, and he has fallen in love with Gumby and Pokey. And What I want to say is that if we're going to think and live as missionaries in this world, we're going to have to be a lot more like Gumby. Uh, Gumby can bend every which way. And he's still Gumby. He can assume all kinds of postures and still be Gumby. Because that's the way he's made. And that's the way you and I are made in Christ. We can bend all kinds of ways. Didn't you hear Paul saying he bent all kinds of ways? To reach different people in different ways for Christ. We need to be a lot more like Gumby. If if we're going to reach Buddhists, but you love to eat meat, you may need to choose to become a vegetarian. Probably a word to the wise there. If, If you're a meat eater and you love to hunt, you may need to give that up. If you're wanting to reach Hindus with the gospel because they're going to think you're killing one of their relatives. If God is calling you to reach people who are homeless, who are otherwise living in poverty, you may need to live a lot more simply than you do. If, if God calls you to evangelize people in another country, you may need to learn a new language and new customs. There is often difficulty, there is often discomfort and even pain involved if you choose to identify with people who are not like you in order to gain a hearing among them for the gospel. Let me suggest another couple of examples that are a bit closer to home, maybe a little more sensitive because of that. Let's take alcohol consumption. And what you think I'm about to say is not what I'm going to say, so just relax. Relax. But let me say right up front that the Bible does not forbid drinking alcoholic beverages. Forbidding Christians from drinking alcohol is actually a, on the, in the scope of history, a rather modern invention. What the Bible warns against is drunkenness. It warns against addiction. It warns against the effects that alcohol, abuse of alcohol, can have on the people around the one who drinks. At the wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus turned water into the best wine. And I imagine that it was, in fact, the very best wine that has ever been made. But here at LifePoint, we have an unwritten policy. It's unwritten, but it is a policy. It's a functional policy that we will not serve alcoholic beverages at church sponsors, at church sponsored events. Why? Out of sensitivity to at least three groups of people. First, those who may be offended in their conscience by our exercise of freedom and be turned away from hearing the gospel. Second, those of weak conscience who may be caused to stumble by our exercise of freedom. And third, those who have a history of alcohol abuse or alcoholism so that we don't create the environment in which they may be tempted to relapse. We do not live unto ourselves, but for the sake of others, because of the gospel. Let me suggest another one that may be kind of risky for me to bring up, because it is still kind of sensitive. Wearing masks, especially in church. You're tensing up, aren't you? Why would we wear masks in church? You know, some people left our church during the pandemic over the mask issue because they felt that we were caving to the government, that that we were pushovers, that they weren't going to give up their rights as Americans. The last time I checked, it was the same Apostle Paul who said that Christians should live in subjection to the governing authorities. unless to do so would be to disobey God. Was wearing a mask disobedient to God? I don't know of any command. Or did it represent sensitivity to others? to so the culture of the community in which we live and minister here in Olympia is largely even extremely decidedly secular. And yet... Some people in our community sometimes actually get the wild idea to go to the church. And some of them, having gone to church, hear the gospel in church, put their faith in Jesus and are saved. Well, Let me ask you, would a secular neighbor of ours, with no hope of eternal life, terrified by the COVID virus, darken the door of our church if they looked inside and saw a lot of people not wearing masks? Probably not in my mind. Is it convenient to wear a mask? Nope. Comfortable? Not really. Have we at times felt jerked around by the government and medical professionals? Yep. Do we distrust them at some level as a result? Yes. Should mature Christians be willing to put on a mask or ten masks if it would mean that we might win a hearing for the gospel among those who have never heard? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that among Christians there's a diversity of opinion on this topic. There's there's a diversity of opinion right here in this room, and I can see it on your faces. And that's okay. Okay. But there should be no diversity when it comes to our willingness to live for others. To be thoughtful about removing obstacles to the gospel. Our ultimate model in this is not Paul, but Jesus Christ himself. To the believers in Philippi, Paul wrote, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant in his incarnation, in his incarnation, the Son of God did not re- relinquish his deity. He remained fully God. What he relinquished were his rights to the honor, to the glory, to the splendor, to the comfort of heaven. And instead he deliberately chose the dishonor and the humiliation of earth, of human flesh, and ultimately the dishonor and humiliation of death on a cross. Why? So that we might live. So that we might be reconciled to God. The Apostle John put it this way, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In verse 4, we find Paul, Silas, and Timothy then traveling and delivering the decision of the Jerusalem council. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. They delivered the decision to the churches in the various cities for observance. That doesn't mean they just looked at them. Like, like you look at your junk mail. Observance means obedience. For implementation. That this is the new decision. This is the new policy is if you will, the new definition. Genuine Christianity would no longer tolerate the teaching that Gentiles had to become Jews in order to be considered Christians. You know, it's interesting, but we hear nothing more about the elders in Jerusalem from this point on in the entirety of the rest of the book of Acts. The the center of the Christian movement has shifted from Jerusalem Jerusalem, To Antioch in Syria, authority is established in the word of God, the the teaching of the apostles and in the local churches. The head of the church is Christ. Pastors and elders serve as under-shepherds to the one great and true shepherd. But in verse 5, Luke points to the outcomes then of their mission, which was strong and growing churches. Chapter 16, verse 5, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. What is the faith in which the churches were strengthened? It's not mere faith in a personal subjective sense, that is my faith, what I believe, what what I choose to value. Rather, it is the faith. The Greek is ho pistos. It's it means ho is the. It's the definite article, the faith. Objective, sound, biblical, apostolic doctrine. Jude, the brother of Jesus, described it as the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And Paul repeatedly demonstrates that that at the center of sound biblical Christian doctrine is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins as the Scriptures said he would, that he was buried as the Scriptures said he would be, that he rose again on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God as the scripture said he would and sat down there, G.K. Chesterton once wrote, we do not want, as the newspapers say, a church that will move with the world. We do not want, as the newspapers say, a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. Sound doctrine strengthens the church. It also strengthens each of us individually as believers. That word translated strengthened in verse 5, doesn't just mean to kind of build you up a little bit, kind of kind of strengthen things up a little bit, kind of get back into shape. That's not the picture. It means to render you immovable from the truth. It means to so stabilize you, to so fortify you that you are steadfast in your faith. The late A.W. Tozer, a 20th century pastor, said this: "In every Christian's heart there is a cross and a throne." And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Let me ask you this morning as we close, who sits on the throne of your life? The answer will reveal nearly everything about you. What areas of your life need to go under the knife in order to live a life that is honoring to God and fruitful for his kingdom? Are you thinking and living as a missionary in your home and in your neighborhood, your school, your workplace? What are the obstacles you need to remove in order to gain a credible hearing for the gospel among those God is calling you to reach? Where do you need to get out of the way? What do you need to let go of that others might be willing to hear? That you might gain a hearing. In a moment, we're going to observe communion together. But first, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to live it. Lord, may we live as those who are clear channels of the communication of the gospel into the lives of the various people that you bring into our lives. Lord, it's not normal for us to choose the cross over the throne. So we ask that your spirit would continue to do that work in us of conforming us to the character of Christ who emptied himself, who paid the ultimate sacrifice, that we might know the gospel, that we might be reconciled to God through personal faith in him. We need you, Lord. Do your work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.